Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 150 for July 5th, 2009. Sometimes I bemoan the fact that Firefox loads at about the same speed that a 10W50 motor oil pours when it's 40 below zero. Much of the fault is mine, though, not Firefox's. The fault is mine because of the number of add-ons that load with Firefox and the fact that I've turned on update checking. So what makes Firefox so slow is also one of the browser's most powerful features. And, by the way, for what it's worth, I didn't mention whether that was 40 degrees below zero Fahrenheit or centigrade. That's because it doesn't matter. That's at the temperature where centigrade and Fahrenheit are the same. If you don't believe me, check the formula. It's on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. But to get back to Firefox, I currently have more than 25 Firefox add-ons. At one time, the add-on page told me how many add-ons were available. It doesn't do that anymore. The most recent figure I can find is from early 2008. At that time, more than 4,600 extensions and at least 650 themes were listed. There's a lot of duplication in some areas, of course. Weather is one example. So you can pick the add-on that you prefer Some are clearly better written than others. Some seem to exist to solve problems that actually don't exist. The add-ons extend Firefox's capabilities. The ones I use tend to be utilities that help me get my work done. But some are solely there because they modify Firefox's appearance in a way that I like. So I thought maybe it'd be interesting to talk about some of the add-ons that I've installed. I don't necessarily recommend these for your use because they might not do things you want to have done. But I do strongly recommend that if you use Firefox, and you should be using Firefox, by the way, that you spend some time looking through the add-ons page at the Mozilla website and see if there's something you'd like to install. One of the most popular is Adblock Plus. It's probably the only controversial add-on that I use. Adblock Plus can cause commercial sites to be displayed without their ads. Now, I understand the need for sites to sell ads, and I really don't object to them if they don't get in the way. But when an ad comes up with sound or motion, it's gone. Babblefish occupies a space somewhere between useful and fun. In The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, we learned the importance of the babblefish. You'd stick one in your ear, and it would translate any language you heard into your language. That's essentially what this add-on does. It instantly translates between dozens of languages, from Albanian to Vietnamese. If I visit Pravda, which is available only in Russian, I can get a translation of the article that, if not perfect, is at least readable. As with most translations, automatic ones in any event, idioms are a particular problem, but you'll get at least a rough idea what the person is trying to say. And there is better Gmail, too. Although Gmail is not my primary email client, this is still a useful add-on because it provides features that Google left out, such as hierarchical labels, macros, and file attachment icons. This add-on is compatible only with Gmail's newer interface. If you're still using the old interface, an earlier version of better Gmail is available. 
You may occasionally need to quote text from a website, but if you copy and paste the text in the usual way, you'll get all of the formatting from the website, and you might not want that. Of course, most applications have a way to paste just the text without formatting. On most Microsoft products, it's called Paste Special. But having this feature built into the browser is helpful because then it'll work with any application. Just select the text, right-click, and choose Copy Plain Text. Formatting begone. The plugin is called Copy Plain Text. Customize Google. This is another useful add-on available for those of us who use Google a lot. You can change the way that Google works and fine-tune it to work the way you'd like it to. Some may want to eliminate the ad results from Google searches. Others may want to keep them. Or you might want to keep the ads in searches but remove them from Gmail. You may want to change some settings that are normally temporary to sticky, meaning that they stay around until you specifically change them instead of reverting to the default value when you close the browser. If you do any website development at all, Firebug will be pretty handy, or even if you just want to understand how a web page does what it does. It's a powerful website development and debugging tool. Firebug shows you the HTML code, cascading stylesheet layout, and any embedded JavaScript code, along with the document object model on each and every page. Enable the Net tab, and you'll see each object on the page, its status, its location, and the amount of load time it adds to the page. And that's just the start. This is a very powerful tool. Forecast Fox is one of the many weather add-ons. It's provided by AccuWeather and offers a reasonable number of functions and information. Currently, Mozilla lists more than 50 add-ons that provide weather information, either as their primary function or a secondary function. So you've got a huge choice there. Ever wonder who's tracking you when you visit a website? If so, you'll want to install Ghostery. When it's activated, Ghostery will tell you the identity of every web bug installed on the site. Web bugs are hidden scripts that track your behavior. They're used to understand their own audience. They're not necessarily bad. In fact, most of them aren't bad. The TechBiter Worldwide website, for example, will show the presence of one web bug called StatCounter. I use that to estimate the amount of traffic on the site. StatCounter collects information about visitors' browsers so that I can adjust the pages to give you the best possible site design. It does not collect any personally identifiable information. Google Preview is a plug-in that also works with Yahoo in addition to Google. It shows you a thumbnail of websites that are returned by the search engine. Sometimes the preview is helpful in determining just which link to choose. If you have a slow connection, this will delay the page load time. But it might also eliminate the need for you to load several pages if you're able to quickly identify the page you're looking for. So maybe in terms of speed, even with a low-speed connection, it's a good idea. HTML Validator is another development tool that isn't essential because Dreamweaver has excellent built-in validation tools. Still, it's helpful as a double-check. And if I visit a web page that seems to be having problems, I can quickly check to see if it's a browser compatibility problem or a coding error. Normally, it's a coding error. In the classification of fun, and maybe not even fun, maybe just silly, there is leet key. It allows you to type in leet. If you're not sure what leet is, you'll just have to visit the TechBiter Worldwide website or look it up on Wikipedia. You can also type in rot13. All letters are rotated 13 places in the alphabet. It's kind of a way to encode your message in a very low-tech way. If you use maps frequently, Minimap will be a helpful addition. It maintains either a map tab for you or a sidebar with a map. 
can define your start location so it'll always be used when you want to obtain directions to or from a location. To start Minimap, all you do is drag an address to the application. If you want to keep the address in the list for future reference, you can name it. Nightly Tester Tools. This is one probably most people wouldn't want to install. But let's say you download and install a new version of Firefox, or that Firefox does it automatically, and then half a dozen of your add-ons stop working. Add-ons have built-in expiration dates. The developer may know, for example, that the add-on works properly with all versions of Firefox from 3.0.0 to 3.0.9. So the add-on might be coded, for example, with a minimum version of 3.0.0 and a maximum of 3.0.9. When version 3.0.10 is released, the add-on will no longer work. In most cases, the application would still work properly following a minor step upgrade, so all that's really needed is to reset the maximum number inside the application. That's one of the primary features of nightly tester tools, but use it with care, particularly when you're testing a new, major version. NoScript is a tool I consider to be important. I turn off all scripting by default and enable it on a page-by-page basis. The first time the browser visits a page that depends on scripting, the page will not work properly. I'll get a message from NoScript that tells me some scripting is being blocked. If it's a page that I trust, I immediately turn scripting on for that visit and for all future visits. Or I may turn it on only for the current visit. You ever get one of those 404 pages? You type a wrong URL and it goes to the right website, but you've misspelled something further down in the URL. 404, page not found. All with perfectly standard and somewhat cryptic text. Override Mozilla Firefox Guidance is a tool that is essentially useless, but gives me a smile whenever a website isn't available. Normally, Firefox pumps out a message with a code and explains in a slightly less cryptic way that there was something that happened. This plugin intercepts the intercept and displays an entirely useless message instead. Entirely useless. Were you motivated enough? The connection to the server was reset while the page was loading. Occasionally, misguided webmasters code their pages so that the pages will load only with Microsoft's Internet Explorer. When you encounter a page such as that with Firefox, you could open IE, or you could simply tell Firefox to report to the site that it really is Internet Explorer instead of Firefox. In most cases, the page will load properly. To do that, you use the user agent switcher add-on. World IP is an add-on that I've added recently. It tells me where a site is hosted. You may be surprised to find that some sites you thought would be in other countries are actually in the United States. Pravda, as expected, is hosted in Russia. But Al Jazeera is hosted in England. I'm still a bit undecided when it comes to the Web of Trust plug-in. Web of Trust accepts ratings from users and reports a combined rating on four categories. Those categories are trustworthiness, reliability, privacy, and child safety. Pravda, for example, gets good marks in all four categories. Then I found a porn site, and guess what? Web of Trust warned me about vendor reliability and child safety. If you mistype a domain name and accidentally wander onto a bad site, for example, almost any misspelling of Microsoft will take you to a bad site, in that case, Web of Trust lets you know there is potential danger before you even get to the site. But beware of the possible dangers of Web of Trust itself, because the raters themselves aren't vetted in any way. Incorrect ratings and mob mentality can take over. 
When I attempted to log on to my account at your mailing list provider, Web of Trust told me that the site was dangerous. I've used your mailing list provider for the TechBiter Worldwide newsletter for years. I use it for clients' newsletters, too. The service and the support are excellent. I could tell Watt to ignore the rating and let me in, but this reminded me that citizen-contributed ratings aren't always reliable. I did actually report this to the Web of Trust folks, and they have since corrected it. I had not planned to talk about Firefox add-ons during the week that a new version of Firefox became available. just happened to work out that way. Browsers are changing so fast that it's hard to keep up with the latest features. Mozilla added so many features to the latest version of Firefox, which became available on the 30th of June, that the version number increased from 3.0 to 3.5 instead of 3.1, which was the original plan. Internet Explorer 8 is out and is reasonably well regarded. Opera 10 is coming soon. Chrome had a recent update. Safari 4 offers some major improvements. The notification from Firefox that a new version was available also included the standard warning that the new version would break some of the extensions that I had installed, and it gave me a list of them. When I installed Firefox 3.5 on June 30th, the first day it was available, some of my add-ons had already been updated. I used nightly tester tools to force the others into compliance despite the usual dire warnings, and guess what? They all worked. So what's new? You can move a tab in the lineup. Well, sure, Firefox could already do that, but now you'll see a transparent thumbnail while you're moving it. When you open Firefox, you can choose the History tab and then open Recently Closed Windows or Restore Everything from the last session. During a session, the History tab will allow you to reopen Recently Closed tabs, too. Want to browse without leaving a trace? Under Tools, select Start Private Browsing. Any existing tabs will disappear. They're not really closed. They just kind of disappear for a while. And you'll see a reminder that says Firefox won't remember any history for this session. In a private browsing session, Firefox won't keep any browser history, search history, download history, web form history, cookies, or temporary Internet files. However, files you download and bookmarks you make will be kept. You can then proceed to browse privately. And when you're finished... Tools Stop Private Browsing restores all your previous tabs. I have complained previously about Firefox's slow startup time, and the good news about version 3.5 is that it does seem to be faster, even with all of the add-ons that I have active. I will need a little more time to test this, though, but as long as I load 25 add-ons, startup is never going to be fast. If you are already using Firefox and it hasn't automatically updated yet, use Find Updates under the Help menu. If you're still using another browser, now might be a really good time to upgrade to Firefox. This hardly seems high-tech. It's about a postal letter. The letter looked legitimate. Granted, it had not arrived in a U.S. Postal Service envelope, but it did look like U.S. Postal Service letterhead. And it had been sent pre-sorted first class, not standard mail. That's the new term for third class. It invited me to become a confidential volunteer to study postal performance. The letter directed me to a website, reportez.com, and told me that I would earn points that could be redeemed for prizes at over 300 retailers nationwide. Now, I could understand how the USPS might want to know how it's doing, but somehow that letter just didn't seem to ring true. For one thing, there was a notice at the bottom of the letter that said, 
Confidential material, not for reproduction or general disclosure. It's not like this would be a matter of national security or great secrecy. And telling the mark something is confidential is one of the oldest tricks in a scammer's book. The letter claimed that IBM was working with the U.S. Postal Service to conduct the surveys. That didn't seem reasonable either. IBM makes hardware. It doesn't conduct surveys. But I decided to play along for a bit. I handed the web address to Central Ops to see who it was registered to. Well, it wasn't registered to IBM. (laughs) What a surprise. It seemed to be registered to some guy named Period. Yeah, where the was a space for a name? It was just a period. The company name was identified as West Corporation in Omaha, Nebraska. A couple of things caught my attention here. First of all, large corporations almost always use network solutions as their registrar. IBM, for example, does. I had never heard of the registrar called CSC Protect Brands. But the big thing here is the domain is not owned by IBM, so I've caught the writer of the letter in a lie of some significance right at the outset. When I checked the address reported by the registrar, the physical address, what I found when I checked the address provided by the registrar was the Nebraska Spine Surgeons PC Center. But there was a list of other companies in the building, and that list included West Telemarketing. So that's who the sender is. These are the people who claim to be IBM. Next, I cautiously visited the website and read the Frequently Asked Questions page. The site told me to visit USPS.com, which is the legitimate United States Postal Service website, and search for EXFC. I did that. And there I learned that IBM is indeed involved in reporting performance statistics. But keep in mind, I already know that the company portrayed in the letter is not IBM. So they're telling me a lot of truth, but underneath the truth is a big lie. The website describes a scanner panel that I can join if I'm qualified. I can report the results online by using a special barcode scanner that scans an intelligent mail barcode. The special barcode mentioned is on the USPS website, too. So everything would seem to be legitimate, except for the fact that there was that big lie about being IBM. A Google search for West Corporation and Omaha turned up a lot of legal cases, most of them involving former employees who say they weren't paid for the work they did. I also found several sites where people described the company as a telemarketing operation. About that time, I thought I'd see what I could learn about the registrar, cscprotectbrands.com, and I got an eyeful there. Web of Trust, as I described earlier in the program, had nothing but red marks for the company's website. Some people have vilified CSC Protect Brands, but not everybody. I'm undecided on whether this is really important. I offer it now simply as another data point. In any event, it doesn't seem to be a registrar that a large, legitimate company would use. So I'm not going to be joining the postal panel anytime soon. In fact, I've turned the letter over to the U.S. postal inspectors, who, so far, seem to be ignoring it with great gusto. I have probably received at least 5,000 bank fraud notices from the Bank of America, but I don't have a Bank of America account. It's easy for me to ignore those. I do, however, have a Chase account. Recently, I received a spam. Actually, it did land in my spam catcher, so I knew immediately it wasn't legitimate. I have, of course, cleared the legitimate bank addresses so that any real messages from the bank won't go to my spam filter. And, of course, I also use a special email account for banking, one with a username that's more than 15 random characters long. And it's not an address that somebody could simply guess. But ignoring all that, and ignoring the fact that 
this message was in the spam catcher. It's interesting to see what the fraudsters are up to. This particular message wanted to send me to a domain called 1iiljih.net. It doesn't sound like Bank One or Chase to me. The registration came back to what is probably a false name at an address in Perry, Pennsylvania. I have never heard of Perry, Pennsylvania. It seems to be a rural area, and the address appears to be an intersection, so I'm fairly certain that Chase doesn't really have any large operations at that intersection. And the address actually is in Harmony, Pennsylvania, which is, I guess, somewhere near Perry. The corporate server for the website that the fraudster would like me to visit, well, that is hosted by Shaw Cable. I don't think that Shaw Cable is hosting any high-security bank websites. The URL I'm supposed to visit is buried deep in the site's directory, so I thought I'd see what's on the site's front step. And there I got what I expected. Forbidden. You do not have permission to access the root directory on this server. You'd think the fraudster would go to just a little more trouble to make the site look legitimate. In short circuits, despite every effort both internal and external to kill it, United Press International continues to exist. Those who worked for UPI referred to themselves as unipressers. UPI was always a scrappy competitor for the Associated Press, AP, and managed to beat the larger AP with embarrassing regularity. At this point, you're probably asking yourself what the heck this has to do with technology. Let me explain. After finishing last week's account of social networking in general, and Twitter in particular, it occurred to me that tweets, those little Twitter posts, can look a lot like unipressor chatter between bureaus, which UPI workers spelled B-U-R-O-S. Bureau-to-bureau communications were often conducted on the newspaper wire, and they were usually written entirely in lower case, possibly because it was faster to type that way, or maybe because it was easier to keep in sync with those old teletype machines without shifting. So a message might say, Jeffries-RA, Emery, you old scutter, many thanks. We'll commiserate more next week. Till then, making final approach looks like a perfect landing. Thanks for everything, Malden-CT. Lots of words spelled in very short form. Thanks is T-H-N-X. Many is M-E-N-E. Not sure why you do that. It's just the same length as M-A-N-Y. But who can explain these things? So the message itself is addressed to Emery Jeffries. I believe R-A is the Bureau. The message was sent by a unipressor named Malden in, I presume, Connecticut. This is part of an exchange between people who left or were fired during UPI's decline. I've quoted it from downhold.org. The Downholders is a free site intended to preserve the history and lore of United Press International and its predecessor agencies, United Press and International News Service, along with their alumni, the Downholders, and the people who still work there. If you visit the Downholders site, what will probably strike you is the brevity of the messages that you see. Now, this reminds me of the brevity that is enforced by such sites as Twitter. As a brief aside, some of the people who worked for UPI over the years, Walter Cronkite, David Brinkley, Eric Severide, Harrison Salisbury, William Shirer, and of course the legendary Helen Thomas, who is now employed by Hearst. She worked there for 57 years as a correspondent, then as the White House Bureau Chief for United Press International. Today's UPI is sadly nothing like the old UPI, but it continues to putter along. In January 2007, I said the big record labels and the RIAA are dead. They just don't know it yet. Independent artists and small labels are using the Internet to go around big labels that used to control music. 
The RIAA continues to fight, but the cause is already lost. Groups such as Chumbawamba openly thumb their collective noses at the old system, and the new artists, such as Vienna Tang, a former Cisco Systems programmer, use the web. Well, since then, the recording industry of America has continued to file suits. It has lost many, won a few. Suits notwithstanding, the downward trend continues. What artists such as Katie Malua, John Prime, Vienna Tang, Chumbawamba, and Chris Stamey, for example, understand, and what the RIAA doesn't understand, is that music sharing, whether by radio or Internet, builds awareness and develops a following. A following. Those are the people who are in the audience at live performances. For income, the RIAA depends on the sale of physical discs. Artists, on the other hand, make more money from live performances. It's even better if they can produce their own CDs, and it's now possible to do that for a relatively small investment. The RIAA wants to keep recorded music under wraps and continue to be paid for every disc sold. Artists, at least the smarter ones, understand that music distribution is the key to convincing the public to pay money to put their butts in seats at concerts. Now, the RIAA used to understand this concept, the concept of publicity. Members of the organization even paid a lot of money, later termed payola, just to convince disc jockeys to play music on the air. Somewhere along the line, the trade group forgot about publicity as a way to entice fans to show up at concerts. If you recall Aesop's fables, you may recognize some elements of the goose that laid the golden egg. The couple that owned the goose thought they could get richer faster if they killed the goose, because then they could have all the entire store of precious metal inside the goose. Instead, they found the goose's innards were pretty much like those of any other goose. The RIAA continues to wave its axe at the goose, but some of today's artists aren't willing to play along. Instead, they've gone to the Internet, where they can provide their music to fans without charge, and where they can interact with fans. What venues should we schedule for our next tour, the artists ask. Fans answer. The artists can cut the RIAA out of the financial picture. They can produce and sell CDs to their fans without the organization. So then the question is, should music be free? Artists differ on that answer, but many of them realize that when more people hear their music, more people will be likely to show up at concerts. Chumbawamba calls for freedom. Send this song to 20 people. One selection begins. It's followed by, but isn't it stealing? The track includes quotes from a corporate voice that says, Why does the consumer want to download music for free? And this is followed by, No matter how much legal action you put behind this, people are going to do what they want to do. The track ends ironically. You can't legislate people's behavior. We don't mind when our fans pay money to wear our promotional t-shirts. And it's fine when they pay $40 to come to one of our concerts. But when our fans think they can listen to our music for free, they just cross the line. Some artists get it. The RIAA doesn't. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.